Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Jude. There is one thing that no one likes. No one likes it when someone takes credit for something they didn't do. We don't tend to like that very much. And that's why I never liked group projects in school. Because there was always one person who did about 90% of the work, and yet everyone got the same grade. That's not fair. I didn't like it. Or it's like when you were a kid. I grew up with four sisters, and there were times when I did something. I cleaned the house, or I took out the trash, and one of my sisters took credit for it. One of my parents, they'd compliment them and say, Oh, honey, thank you so much. And I'd scream out, No, I did that. That was me. Sometimes, though, it works in your favor. The other night at my home, we were eating dinner together as a family, and my daughter, who's four, she thought that I had cooked the chicken, but my wife actually made it. (laughs) And she said, Daddy, this chicken is really good. What did I say back to her? I said, oh, thank you, Charlotte. That is so nice of you to say that. My wife didn't like that very much. Look, we don't like it when someone takes credit for something they didn't do, but here's the thing. We often do that with our spiritual lives. We may not say it out loud. We may not walk around like, oh, look at me. Look how holy I am. But subconsciously, we like to give ourselves a little credit. We go to church. We give some money to people in need. We read our Bible. We really give a really good answer in Sunday school. And we got no problem taking the credit, feeling good about ourselves. Man, God is so lucky to have me as his child. Or sometimes we give ourselves credit for not doing the bad things we shouldn't do. We think, oh, I'm not as bad as they are. I would never do that. At least I'm a better Christian than he is, right? They're just not on my level. And we may not be that bold, even in our own heads. But deep down, we have this idea that when we do something good, we deserve a little credit for it. We deserve some recognition, Or at least to be thought well of, or at the very least to be happy. I mean, for God to bless us, right? But then we look at the Word of God, and we get put in our place. You ever get put in your place? (laughs) We discover that if we got what we actually deserve, it would not be pretty. It would not be a blessing. Look, we don't get any credit because we really don't deserve any credit. Rather, God is the one who gets all the credit. Everything we have comes from him. And the New Testament authors make that clear, usually at the beginning and end of their letters. Typically, they start and finish their writing with a focus on the greatness and glory of God. And that's how the book of Jude ends. Jude ends his letter with two verses that have become the most well-known verses from this letter. They form what's called a doxology. How many of you grew up in a church where you sing the doxology every Sunday? Yeah. That word doxology, it simply means a praise, a praise to God. And these are quite common in the New Testament. But Jude takes the doxology and he uses it not only to give God the credit and the glory that he's due, but he does it in a way that speaks uniquely to his purpose in writing this letter. Remember, the series we have is titled The Battle Ready Life. Jude wrote this letter to address a church that was facing a crisis. False teachers had come into their midst and were misusing God's grace to justify their sin. So Jude challenged them to reject the false teaching and to help bring others back to the truth. 
And then very last, he ties it all together by showing us exactly where the credit is due in this situation. He ends by pointing us beyond ourselves to someone greater who we'll see is the battle-tested victor. So let's read Jude verses 24 and 25. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You guys can be seated. Isn't that awesome? I mean, aren't those just some of the greatest verses we have? It's good, and this, this doxology, it's a declaration, it's an announcement, and in this context, it serves as kind of a victory song of sorts. Because even though this church was facing an intense struggle, even though there were people who were trying to tear the church apart, Jude reminded them, hey, the battle is already over. It's already won. Jesus is the victor. He is the champion now and forever. And in light of that, there's two ways to respond. So let's walk through this text verse by verse. And as we do, I want to show you those two ways we respond. Here's the first. Number one, we stand in the victor's power. Jude begins this doxology, this word of praise by putting the focus on God. Look at verse 24. He says, now to him who is able. That's how he refers to God. He says he's a God who is able. And he's speaking here of the power of God. If you're going through a situation, a a tough time in your life, isn't it encouraging to know that we have a God who is able? That's so encouraging. God is omnipotent, which is a fancy way of saying that he has all the power. We have a God who's not limited like we are in his ability or his strength or what he can and can't do. No, when it comes to God, nothing is impossible for him. He said himself in Jeremiah 32, 27, he said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? The answer to that question is obviously no. Nothing is too hard for God because he's a God who is able. There's nothing out of his reach. And here's what he tells Jude. Or here's what Jude tells these believers God's able to do. Look at verse 24 again. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Two things. God is able to keep you and to present you. First, he says, God is able to keep you from stumbling. On my uh, vacation last month, my family, we went down to Florida to the beach and my son, he's 18 months old. This was his very first time at the beach, and he, he loved it. He loved it a little too much. That was the problem. He wanted to go right into the ocean. He wanted to just take off full sprint right there where the waves are crashing on the shore. But he couldn't walk very well on the sand or especially on the water when the tide was pulling him in and out. So in order to keep him from stumbling, either my wife or me, we had to pretty much help him at all times. We would go out to where the, 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 the tide is coming in. We'd take both of his hands, and whenever a wave would come, he would jump, and we'd pick him up high above the waves. And we'd do that over and over until my shoulders are really hurting. Uh, but he loved it. He would just laugh and giggle. If someone were to look at us that day on the beach, 
If someone were to see us playing with our son in the ocean, they would not say, wow, that one-year-old baby can jump really high. They would not say, man, look how good he does jumping over those waves. No, they would recognize that the only reason he was standing and not drowning was because we were keeping him from stumbling. That's what this verse means. It may look like we're doing something good in our lives, like we got some things figured out, like we got it going on, but God is the one who keeps us. That word keep could also be translated guard. It speaks to God preserving his people. He, he protects and cares for us as his children. If I protect and care for my children as an imperfect parent and limited strength and power, then how much more God, then does God protect and care for us? But here's the question. What is he keeping us from? What is stumbling? Does that mean we're never going to sin again if we follow Jesus? <laughs> no. You've probably figured out that's not the case. We'll never be perfect in this life. What he means is that God will keep us from losing our faith. He will keep us from stumbling to eternal judgment. Once he has us, he will not let us go. Think of how meaningful this would have been for these original churches as these false teachers spread lies and divided the churches. They saw friends and family who walked away from the faith. Jude says, hey, ultimately God is the one who keeps you in the faith, so don't be afraid. This is reason, number 4,674, that I believe in what's sometimes called the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. When someone truly places their trust in Jesus and he saves them and changes them and indwells them with the Holy Spirit, that will never change. You cannot be unsaved or lost again or have your citizenship in heaven revoked. The one who is saved by Jesus will be kept by Jesus and they will persevere by Jesus forever. But let's make sure we don't get arrogant here. Remember, we don't get the credit for this. Notice it's God who keeps us from stumbling. Lord knows if it were up to me, I would have lost my salvation a long time ago. I would have given up. I would have fallen away. I would have sinned myself right into hell. But God, but God in his endless mercy and all-consuming grace, he saved me. He keeps me, and he will never let me go. I cannot lose my salvation because I didn't earn it in the first place. I didn't do enough good to get it, and I can't do enough bad to lose it. It was a free gift given to me by God because of Jesus. That's grace. And it's so important for the Christian life because there are going to be times when you doubt. One of the biggest struggles that Christians face is wrestling with the assurance of their salvation. Satan loves to whisper his lies in the ears of God's children when you mess up again, when you just can't seem to get it right, when you live with that regret of that mistake you made in the past, he loves to say, are you sure you're saved? When I went through the darkest time of my life with an intense season of depression and anxiety, I doubted my salvation. I thought, Christians aren't supposed to feel like this. Christians don't deal with this. I must be deceived. I must be that guy in Matthew 7 who Jesus is going to say to, depart from me. I, I never knew you. But it's verses like these that help me so much and still help me today. In my darkest moments, he keeps me from stumbling. 
When I sin again, his mercy is new every day. When the enemy whispers in my ear, his word shouts louder. I cannot outrun the grace of God because he won't let me go, and he is much faster than me. (laughs) Second, Jude tells us God not only keeps us from stumbling, but God will present us blameless. That word present is literally translated make you stand. So God is going to cause us to make us stand. When? At the judgment day. At that final last day when we stand before the judgment seat of God. And here's how we will stand there. It says we will be blameless. That word blameless was used in the Old Testament to speak of sacrifices that were clean and pure. It was used to describe the sacrifice of Jesus. It means that we will stand before God perfect. It will be as if we had never sinned and had been perfectly obedient. But hang on. How's that work? Let me tell you, I'm far from perfect. I got a long record of sin and I'm still adding to it every day. Are you telling me that one day I'm going to get good enough at this thing called life to stand before God and be perfect? No. Again, we don't get the credit. We won't be standing before God perfect because of our own merits or because of our own morals or because of our intelligence or our ability or our family or our upbringing or all the ways we've served in the church. It won't be because of anything we've done, no matter how much money you give away, no matter how many Sunday school lessons you've taught. If you try and stand before God based on your own record and your own good life, you will never be able to stand blameless before a holy God. And we know many people will try to do that on that day. They'll say, God, look at what I did. I was a good person. I went to church. I read the Bible. I got baptized, God. I gave money away to charity. Look at my bank account. Look at my family. Look at my my nice career. And that's when God will say, depart from me, I never knew you. When we stand before God as followers of Jesus, we will stand there blameless and perfect, not because of us, but because of Jesus and what he did in our place. God will see us clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and this is possible because of the cross. You see, on the cross, God did a miracle. He took our sin and judgment and placed it on Christ. And he took Christ's perfect record and perfect obedience and placed it on us. There was a switch. Here's what that means. When you do a group project with God, he does 100% of the work and gives you 100% of the credit. That's grace. And there's no other way we can make it. There's no other way we get in. We will stand before God and walk into heaven, not as beggars or peasants, but as sons and daughters of the king blameless because of Jesus. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. He's the victor. And we get the joy. Don't miss that last part. Did you see that? With great joy. When we give God glory, we experience joy. Man, there's so many people in the world today, they're looking for happiness. They're looking for joy. They're looking for purpose. It's found in glorifying God. That's what you were created for. And when we express our joy and worship to God, it brings him more glory, which brings us more joy, which brings him more glory. So in light of this incredible verse, we must stand in the victor's power. 
We cannot try and live in our own strength or for our own glory. Many people do. They like to build their own kingdom, think how hard they worked, how much they've earned. We were saved by grace, and now we walk in grace. We stand in the victor's power. That's the first way we respond to this passage. Here's the second. Number two, we rest in the victor's position. Look at verse 25 again. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I want us to see in this verse the rich theology. That word theology gets kind of a bad rap. It sounds kind of boring, dull, like you got to be really smart. Like we're going to sit around and drink hot tea and argue about whether Adam and Eve had belly buttons or not. Y'all never thought about that? You're going to go home and look it up. I'm telling you. But here's the thing. Everyone practices theology. Everyone's a theologian, whether you realize it or not, because theology is simply thinking about God. If you believe anything about God and his word, even if it's wrong, you're doing theology. And what we may also may not realize is how our theology, our beliefs about God affect the way we live. When you know something in your mind, you believe it in your heart, it comes out in your actions. This means our theology, what we know about God, what we believe, it's extremely important. A.W. Tozer, famous author, he said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So we got to make sure we get our theology right. We've got to believe things about God that are true. We don't have a God that we like to think about, a God that we wish were this way. We have a God who is. And that's what the Bible's for. Verses like 25, they, they form our thinking and our theology of who God is. So let me just point out to you really quick six theological truths from this one verse, and then I'll, I'll show you what it all means. Here, here's the first. Look at verse 25. First theological truth, there is only one God. From beginning to end, the Bible makes clear we have one God who we worship and we exist for him. You exist to know God and make him known. And these false teachers were perverting the gospel. They were teaching about another God. But we, Jude reminds us, we have the one true God, the God of the Bible. Second theological truth, keep following along with me. It says God is our Savior. Not only does God exist as some high and lifted up transcendent being, but he also comes close. He comes near. He's been involved throughout all of human history and even before to save a people for himself. Even though he knew the cost, even though he knew you and I were going to blow it, he still chose to save us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save Third theological truth we learn here is that God saves us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even though God is one, he is one God in three persons. And that's the mystery of what we call the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one God. And it's through that second person, Jesus, that we come to him. It's through what he did on the cross and through the resurrection that we come to know the Father. Jesus accomplished all that was needed to save us. So Jude reminded the church, I don't care what these other guys are saying. Let me tell you, Jesus is the only way to be saved, period. Fourth theological truth we learn is that God is glorious and majestic. These are words that 
are really kind of impossible to describe. They're words that define the undefinable aspects of God. They speak of how great and glorious and awesome. It's like trying to teach calculus to an ant, trying to explain how amazing God is. But he's this fullness of, of beauty and perfection. There's nothing and no one like him. Fifth theological truth tells us that God has all dominion and authority. This speaks to the power and control of God. He, cannot, he not only can control all things, but he has the authority to do so. It's his. He created all life. And he holds all life in his hands. He's sovereign. He's working in every way. So Jude reminded these believers, I know things look bleak, but don't fear because God is in control. Sixth and last theological truth tells us that God is eternal and unchanging. He is before all time, now and forever. Past, present, and future are before him. He's outside of space and time, yet intricately aware of every single moment. He was not created, and he will never be destroyed. He has always been endlessly glorious, and he always will be. We live in a world where everything is changing all the time, but God never will. Do you see how important one verse can be? All that rich truth. You say, yeah, that's great. But what do we do with it? And the better question is, what don't we do with it? As I said, what you believe about God is going to inform every part of your life, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your free time, the way you behave at work, the way you act around your friends, the attitudes you have, the way your marriage functions, the words you speak. So look, this is not just fancy language. This is not just poetic mumbo-jumbo. This is life-altering, soul-forming truth. So the question is not, do you know this in your mind? If you were listening, you do. <laughs> the question is now, do you believe it? Is this your God? When you pray, when you sing about God, is this the God you know and you serve? Do these truths go down into your soul and change you? Jude ends with this verse because he wants us to recognize God, the true God, and give him the glory he's due. But he also wants to emphasize to these believers that this is the God we worship. When these people were under attack. They were being told things that were false. They were being tempted to fall into sexual sin. They were, the church was being divided. And I want you to know the same thing is true of us today. Whether we know it or not, we are under attack. We have an enemy, Satan, who prowls around seeking to devour us. We have a world around us that is actively lying and distorting the truth. We have a culture that wants to distract us with all these things. Look over here and look over there and get mad about this and you need to worry about this. And we get so focused on everything else that we miss what life is all about. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. This is the truth. This is not a truth. This is the truth. This is what life is about. This is it. This is why you were, you were created. This is why you're here. This is why our church sits on Ridgeview Road. This is why we were made. It's not about us. Boy, I need to hear that every day. It's not about us. It's about God and his glory, and we don't get the credit. 
And we can try, like we so often do, to live our own little lives and build our own little kingdom and be so proud of our own little family and our own little accomplishments, but we will not succeed because God will have his glory. So what we must do is rest in the victor's position. And this seems a little contrary. If there's a battle going on, if we're under attack, then we need to fight. That's the whole point of this series, right? It's the battle-ready life. I'm, I'm ready to fight somebody and get out there and win this battle. But here's the key. The secret to the battle-ready life is knowing that the battle is already won. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Jesus Christ is the champion. The battle's over. Through what he did on the cross and at the grave, he has defeated and declared victory over sin and death and hell. He fought the battle on our behalf. He was battle-tested, and he walked out the other side. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. And here's the amazing thing. It's not just like, oh, cool, thank you, Jesus. That's cool that you did that. No, the Bible tells us that when we trust in him, when we give him our lives, we become united with him. His victory becomes ours. His position becomes ours. Listen to these verses that speak to our being united with Jesus. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see that? All that Jesus accomplished is now ours because we've been united with him. We have the same victory he does. So he gets the credit. He gets the glory. And we get to rest in the victor's position. We get to fight the battle alongside him, knowing the outcome has already been decided. It's over. We're on the winning side, and we get to celebrate with the champion. Last thing, Jude ends his letter with one last word, a word we see often in the Bible, simply the word, amen. It's a word we hear a lot, maybe at the end of a prayer. It's kind of customary for us to say in Jesus' name, amen. We hear it at the end of songs. It's a Hebrew word that's been carried over from the Old Testament to the New that means truly. In basic terms, to say amen is to say I agree, which is why sometimes people say it during a sermon, right? Right? Oh, wow, okay. Okay. It's a word of affirmation and agreement. It's to to take what has been said and to make it your own, to grab that truth and say, yep, I believe that too. And that is exactly what Jude and all the New Testament and really all of God's word is calling us to do. In fact, I think amen is really a perfect summary of how we should respond to the gospel. As God does all that he does, he gets the credit and we simply respond amen. Truly, I agree. That's it. That's right. Right on. Think about it. Before we were even born, God sent his own son to the earth to save us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. And all we can say is amen. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus died on the cross, taking our judgment and our place. And we say amen. When we were on the road to hell, 
facing the prospect of eternal judgment. Jesus defeated death, defeated hell, and secured for us eternal life. And we say, amen. When we had nothing good or desirable in us, God gave us his grace, tearing the veil, making a relationship with us, putting his Holy Spirit inside of us, and we say, amen. And even now when we still mess up, when we blow it again, when we wonder away, when we doubt his goodness, when we wonder why he ever would have saved me, he holds us up and keeps us from stumbling, and we say, amen. And when we die... And we stand before a holy God with nothing to show on our own merits. He presents us blameless, spotless, clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. And we say, amen. We say amen again and again our whole lives. Every day we wake up, we believe the gospel again, and we cry out, amen. I believe in you, God. I believe your word is true. I believe in the gospel. And I believe I'm in need of your grace. Amen. It's true. I affirm it. I lay claim to that. I take hold of it. Troubles may come. Enemies fight against us. Just like this church in Jude, we will struggle, but Jesus is the victor. God gets the glory, and we get the great joy as we cry out together and we say, Amen. Amen.